Give her responsibility, sister. She badly wants importance. Do you think it's a good thing to let her feel important? Spare her some of your own importance, if you can. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 145 today, which is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? The beautiful and haunting Black Narcissus from 1947, written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, otherwise known as The Archers. It stars Deborah Carr, Kathleen Byron, Sabu, David Farrar, Flora Robeson, and Gene Simmons. It was adapted from the 1939 novel by Rumor Godden, who, by the way, hated this yeah, film. Not a fan. <laughs> it's about a group of Anglican nuns who come to the Himalayas to create a school in a hospital. And then they find themselves challenged in a number of ways by the terrain, the indigenous culture, and mostly by their own natures and desires. I mentioned it was beautiful. It won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography for Jack Cardiff and an award for Best Art Direction for Alfred Jung. Looking back at this, how is this our first pal in a Pressburger? That hardly seems possible. It's surprising, but it's also exciting because it makes me think of all the great stuff that's still to come, too, I guess. We still have our first Werner Herzog, our first Lynn Ramsey, our first David Lynch, our first Kelly Reichardt, our first Akira Kurosawa, our first Federico Fellini, on and oh on my and gosh. on. So much stuff to get <laughs> we to. We better get on it. Yeah, exactly. All of that stuff is still on the horizon. So much to look forward to. So it's super exciting in that regard. It's also super exciting from the jump because we get one of my favorite production company logos, the rank organization gong combined with the archer's target, the bullseye. For me, this ranks right up there with the RKO radio tower and the little universal airplane. I'm totally with you, except for the universal sparkling lights. Right. We all know that that is the better one. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> so are you ready to get into the film? Yep. Well, we have this insanely beautiful opening, the ceremonial horn. I don't know about you, but the font for the credits, it reminds me of kind of Prince Valiant or Ivanhoe-ish. So I'm ready for a tale in an exotic land. And we get these first landscapes, giving us a conception of what the movie's going to look like. And I noticed something in this viewing that I hadn't really noticed before, and that's the odd angles on everything above, from the side, back behind. It seems like everything is shot from some other object's vantage point. And to me, that's Pal and Pressburger, and then the incomparable Jack Cardiff. So I wanted to talk about them as technicians and creators. Well, Jack Cardiff is a genius. We cannot argue that. That is just established fact. You look at this resume, multiple efforts with Pal and Pressburger, collaborations with Alfred Hitchcock, John Huston, Laurence Olivier, and then when he wasn't shooting some of the greatest 
Technicolor footage ever for other people, he was directing. In particular, he made a really poetic adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, for which he was nominated for a Best Director Oscar. He could do everything. And then when you track what Powell was achieving in the realm of Technicolor film in general, it's this constant upward arc for well over a decade. You start with The Thief of Baghdad, which is stunning, and then you go to this, which, upon seeing, you might say, well, that's perfect, we're never going to see a better use of that technology, and then you springboard from that to the somehow even more spectacular Red Shoes and Tales of Hoffman. It was a constant redefinition of what you thought was possible. And let's get into the color work itself, the matte paintings, the technicolor. Now, I don't know about you, but I generally had this idea of Pressburger as sort of fading into the background a little bit, but that definitely was not the case in their collaborations. Yeah, exactly. I think of producer as money man, background, like you say, but I don't think I ever realized before we watched it again this time that they wrote the screenplay together as well. And it's a remarkable achievement in turning a lot of exposition and dialogue that was on the page in the novel into richly detailed visual impressions on the screen. And you mentioned Rumor Godden. She did not like this at all. I don't know if it's just that she felt they were playing too fast and loose with the written word, but she vowed to never let a book of hers be adapted into a film ever again. Fortunately, she didn't adhere to that. And as a result, we got Renoir's adaptation of The River, which I love, but which is apples and oranges with Black Narcissus. And she loved that right. adaptation. Well, let's get into some of the color itself and those matte paintings. This is famous for those. I had never seen anything like this kind of work when I came to this film. By the way, those landscapes credited to W. Percy Day. And I want to talk about something that Powell said at one point. Sometimes in a film, its theme or its color are more important than the plot, even though there is a detailed plot here. But this painting work is extraordinary. Sometimes it feels false to me, but breathtaking nonetheless. And for me, that contributes to this feeling of it being kind of a fever dream, which is something that I see in Powell and Pressburger all the time. Well, the thing that I'm always surprised about when I revisit this, every time I am surprised to encounter full screen aspect ratio, because in my memory, in my imagination, I think of it as being so expansive, stunning cinemascope to complement the Technicolor, but it's not. And that is just a testament to the world that they developed through that use of color, through the production design, in particular, these matte paintings. They are iconic in their grandeur and their epic sweep. And like you say, Walter Percy Day's contribution to the mood and success of this film cannot be overstated. And I'm really glad that we have a number of instances of being able to see the actual landscape next to his paintings. So you can see how he brought this world to life. Powell and Pressburger and company were just operating on a completely different level, it seems like. Without having been there to experience it directly in its own time, I think it's kind of hard for us to get the full effect of just how much what they were doing was unlike anything else that was happening at the time. It's not an ethnographic film. It's not an Ealing or Gainsborough comedy. It's not kitchen sink realism. No one else was making movies like this at the time, which I think is abundantly clear when we go back and watch them. 
And I just love that so much. I love to see an authorial stamp, but even more so when it's an entire universe that feels like no one else could have made. And they controlled every aspect of filmmaking and insisted on it not being shot on location so that they could control every aspect of the look. Which may seem counterintuitive. That may seem, oh, this is a little severe or forbidding, but that's not the case at all all. It's such an inviting feeling when you encounter their body of work. It's like they say, look at all the love and care and effort and skill that we put into this. We encourage you to step inside and just lose yourself in it. And all without pandering to an audience or making significant compromises. They made exactly what they felt like they had to, and they expected the audience to meet it on that level. Do you have a single favorite image or example of one of the matte paintings? There are so many choices. It's hard. There are obviously a lot of striking choices, but two things stick out for me, and they are polar opposites. For one, I have to go with the first shots of the exterior of the building and the way it gives a hint of slight decay. I think this slightly ruined location is a beautiful metaphor for the fecundity and the reality of life eroding your more saintly aspirations before they're even moved in. In retrospect, just looking at the building itself, it's like they never stood a chance here. The natural world will always have its way. And it's one of those things that won an Academy Award, obviously, for a very good reason. The art direction is the real superstar here for me. Because so much of this, like you were saying, it's not actually real. And yet it is so immersive in environment. The precision and the control of color and tone, it all works so perfectly on the viewer it's astounding. And then the second thing is that image of Ruth being so defiant in that dress. When they are sitting there together waiting for the sun to come up, it's like Cloda is watching the devil take shape right before her eyes. Can you imagine how startling that color would have looked on screen in 1947 to those audiences? We are definitely going to talk about some of those artificial choices later on and how they play for us. But I can't resist mentioning one of my favorite images. It's the holy man's point of view. Mm. The camera is behind him, and we see the entirety of what he sees, which seems like the entire world. So we're introduced to our players. We have Sister Cloda, who's been put in charge of setting up the school in this hospital. And the camera obviously loves her, even in her white garb, all specifically chosen to give the sense of that kind of medieval feeling. The Technicolor at certain points makes her look like she has lipstick on, which Powell said she never did, but uh, I don't know if I quite believe him. But how do we feel in these moments about Deborah Carr as a sex symbol? Well, Michael Powell certainly has a type, huh? Going from her to Byron after that. While she might not be exactly my taste, I get it. Because when I compare her to someone that people might consider the same genteel type, like Grace Kelly, for instance, Carr has a warmth that lends itself to imagining her as having more going on beneath the surface, I think. And that's really enticing. And then, in later examples, when she literally lets her hair down in the innocence, for instance, a case can definitely be made. I roundly disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I think she plays her character really well. So I mistrust her 
from the start. If you compare her to someone like Ingrid Bergman or Julie Andrews in terms of playing nuns, I just never look at her as being a sexual being. She seems like a schoolmarm. Apparently that was not reflected in her real life, but in general, she's boring to me as a woman. I do think that fits here. I'm not saying I don't like her performance. It's that sexual aspect that I don't really see reading. Not even something like From Here to Eternity? That is also seems completely improbable <laughs> to me, even though she wears uh, short shorts, like another of our characters in this film. <laughs> well, right. Speaking of sex symbols... Our friend Nicole from the Movie Go Round podcast, she wanted to make sure that we address the issue of Mr. Dean's shorts. Uh, don't worry, Nicole. How could we possibly pass up that opportunity? This seems like a bit of an eccentric costume choice. How does it read to you? Uh, the higher the shorts, the closer to heaven. <laughs> but not in his case. He's got this supposed kind of gone native look. It's kind of ridiculous because, to me, it never matches what the actual natives are wearing. He's either wearing too little or too much, and nobody else wears shorts that small. And then if they're going to have him wear those shorts, give him a spray tan or something. It has to be to facilitate how high he has to keep his knees when he's riding that donkey. That donkey is one size too small for him, too. We have to consider time and place, I think. The overall presentation is alluring to at least a few of these nuns, obviously. And I think it's really interesting to me how much they swing the pendulum the other way in terms of traditional gaze. He is essentially the only character whose body they show this much of. Absolutely true. But I don't think it plays to me the way it does to you. I think they were trying to go for and mostly achieve this idea of him being almost an athlete an Olympian figure in terms of the way they put his body on display and the way he works and is in motion. Yeah, I'm not saying that he's disgusting. It just these days is a little bit odd. And I don't know if anybody else would have necessarily thought the same thing. Well, I guess I'm sending those shorts back then as soon as they get here. <laughs> no, you're keeping those. Okay. On another note, Cloda is building the team to go with her, and we get to know the other nuns that she's taking, and then we see them arrive as well. And right away, it doesn't seem like they're getting on a good foot here, which again could be the way that it plays, but I do want to talk about that later. When you see them arrive, and look at what they're talking about setting up, can you name for me three things that are worse than being subjected to missionary work? I think it'll only take one, and I'm going to say something that you and everyone listening, I think, aren't going to like. Two words, eyeball paper cut. Whoa, I almost wrote down the paper cut that you get in the webbing between your yeah. thumb and your index finger. It's awful. Missionary work, and I freely admit my biases here, and all of its presuppositions, they seem to be nothing but arrogance and condescension to me. There is little to nothing that you can do to justify it to me. Within that, though, there are ideas that intrigue me, one of which is purity as a requirement to live this life. Hold on, though. I came up with a couple of things. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with human trafficking. I put slavery in there as well. And then COVID. And those are the only two things I could think of. So that means I'm definitely not pure enough to go on this journey. I can vouch for that. 
<laughs> it's getting saucy in this episode. Well, we see Cloda being tempted and disrupted by her secular thoughts and memories. Do you think this is what the Mother Superior saw in her when she said she thought she wasn't ready for this assignment? Now, this is interesting to me because this order, they are volunteers. And they renew their vows yearly, which is definitely something that sets them apart from the way that I think other orders run. Having said that, though, I'm assuming that the Mother Superior knows why Cloda came into the convent. Even taking into account Cloda's question about Sister Ruth, she says, is her vocation our vocation? Or maybe... The Mother Superior just knows she can be kind of a prim asshole based on brushing aside that other native teacher and the children when she's called. Maybe that she doesn't have the emotional power to deal with her own life, let alone take on the management of such a remote location. I think it's some of that, but I also think it's something even more substantial when it comes to your personal theology. It's a deadly sin that I think she's guilty of. Pride. I never thought of that. Well, pride goeth before a fall, right? And that's certainly the case for Sister Ruth. Heyo. <laughs> but you're right. Establishing this convent is an enormous honor and an enormous responsibility. And like you mentioned, it's stressed that they are not a contemplative order. I like that they plant that seed for us to wrestle with because it's both exactly right and yet somehow completely untrue. Maybe they need to focus a bit more on actual contemplation. Yeah. It's an enormous labor to do this, but they are also all simultaneously nothing if not completely in their own heads. And who can blame them? You just look around at these new digs. It's a seraglio with erotic paintings on the wall. A harem was kept here. It's just beautiful symbolism. I think, get thee to a nunnery. Nunnery being in heavy Shakespearean quotation marks. Yeah. They say this is no place to put a nunnery, but here we are. And boy, Sister Ruth sure knows how to ring that bell, by the way. Well, Dean gives them a pretty dire pronouncement. He gives them till the rains break. He doesn't think much of them. Which I wonder how they're going to pull off, since so much of this is so sit-bound. So much of this was shot at Pinewood Studios, for example. And it feels like a filmed play in a lot of sections to me. I can see why this would appeal to you in terms of a certain strain of theatricality. Did you feel any of that? You know, oddly, even though we've talked about this not being truly on location, it still kind of feels like an outdoor film to me. I don't associate it with theatricality in terms of feeling stage-bound, for example. It's again more like a dream that I talked about. Sort of like that weird gothicness of Green for Danger. Do mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Where you know that you're not actually in the English countryside, but it just feels right somehow. They're talking about how to get this school up and running, and basically, the students will be paid to come by the general till they get in the habit. They're like children, we're told. And meanwhile, one of the nuns is really also starting to remember those earthly things that Sister Philippa played by Flora Robeson. And Cloda's answer to that is just work so hard you can't think anymore. So how well are they functioning at this point? Are they making their stamp? Are they becoming one with the people or specifically just trying to be the overlords of them? Which leads me to my next question. How much intrusion into another culture by interlopers 
is allowable, do you think? Well, the key to it is semantics. It's the word that you have just chosen. Intrusion makes me think 0% is allowable. That's my answer, too. And Clodagh's attitude, I think, is a sterling example of that upon arrival. She's distracted and disturbed by all these things and conditions that, to us, seem to have been eternal here. As if the whole place should acquiesce to her idea of how things should be. There's also another angle to that, though. That her discomfort with it, maybe these are the first stirrings of the understanding that she's the intruder here and it's causing her discomfort. Note that none of the other sisters ever questioned it this same way. The cognitive dissonance that she's feeling, I think it's a good start, but she's just not fully equipped to handle it yet in any way that denies those old colonial reflexes. I think they're basically all skunks, and that includes Dean. This just arrogance as to how they treat everyone and refer to everyone who is not them, meaning white people. But being the Anglo interlopers like they are, I think it's interesting that it's her flashbacks to Ireland are what eventually help her contextualize and overcome that. At least a little. And then you see a similar instance when she takes offense to the question, what would Christ have done? Which seems at first like simple arrogance, like you're saying, but this could also be read as having to confront the idea that either she is not cut out for the convent life or the convent life itself is somehow illegitimate. Doubt is going to work on her. You think the seeds are being planted. Right. She's not perfect, but how many of us are when we're working through some shit? <laughs> it's true. She keeps coming up against it again and again, actually. Dean asks her later, isn't it your business to save souls when they are introducing this wayward girl to be cloistered? So all of these circumstances are chipping away at her prideful responses. She's stung by every one of them. You see it in her face. All the way back to when it happened with the Mother Superior. It is unpleasant to have to be put in your place this way. And that leads me back to your original question here. If we go with reverence and attempting to understand, it's not so much an intrusion. You and I, we travel a lot, as much as we can, to far-flung places. We're even going as far as considering moving to Norway at some point because we love what we encounter there so much. If we go with humility and respect and it doesn't do harm, we should be able to go where it makes us happy. I agree with you. And the difference here is that idea that they can't seem to separate. We're doing this school in this hospital in order to do good. But that's an imposing of one's belief on others without having asked them what they want or need. And if I think at some point, I probably gave the Peace Corps a pass, mm -hmm. for example, but I'm really more about allowing people to get into their autonomous place, which these folks are not ready for at this point, the folks meaning the nuns. And this takes place at such an interesting time in history, which we'll get to. So far, though, it seems like they don't have the time or the ability to really understand a culture other than their own. Now, having slagged them off, <laughs> I do have an answer to this myself. Who is your favorite nun? Oh, this was such a tight race. Sister Bryony came out of the gate as my favorite. She's perceptive and intuitive and most importantly, I think supremely honest. But then Philippa came on strong as a dark horse with her frank self-assessment. I really love that. She edges out Bryony, I think, because her revelations feel the most profound to me. I picked the same two. I'm torn between them. Bryony with her sensibleness and her gentle humor as well. Philippa with that 
thousand-yard stare into beauty and longing. Well, speaking of longing, let's talk about Clodas. We get more extended flashbacks of her story, this man that she loved, the money that she would have inherited. There's a moment that I love here as she's thinking about this, and the shadow from the cross in the window moves further off of her face. I love that touch. And then men are going to play a bit more of a part here. We have, of course, her long-lost love. Dean continues to figure in the story. We meet the holy man, and then we see the prince, played by Sabu. So is this an appropriate time to talk about one of the darker sides of controlling the tone instead of authenticity? We have to talk about it at some point, so might as well. And that's brownface, unfortunately. Sabu was the only ethnic Indian to play a role here. Otherwise, the characters who are supposed to be native are not. And then the random extras playing the natives, they were a mix of all different cultures, corralled together from the docks in England. The UK equivalent, basically, of all these Italians playing Indians and Mexicans and Westerns in early Hollywood. Right. So... How do you feel about brownface? Well, it's one of those elements that I think really highlights the major differences between how contemporaneous audiences might have seen it then versus how we look at it today. They certainly shot it in a way that makes it seem mystical and seductive, and you're in the twilight of that whole the sun never sets on the British Empire era back when that was a boast. And so, yes, this is one of the unpleasant byproducts of all of that. It's the use of brownface and then cultural appropriation. We have Mae Hallett, for instance, and her hamming it up, which may be the most disconcerting part of the whole thing. I wondered how that struck you, knowing how you feel, for example, about Una O'Connor when James Whale lets her off the leash. Yeah, it's grotesque, and so is the use of brownface. And like you said, this is something that we've seen many times, and... It would gradually, I think, become more obvious. Music, film, lots of people appropriating different cultures. And it's really those technicolor years where it seems so obvious, at least to us. I definitely do not want to brush it off. I don't want to give the whole piece, whatever the art form, a pass for using it. I want to keep pointing it out and discussing it because I think truly these and any filmmakers could have been held to a higher standard at any point. It was never okay. It will never be okay. I'm delighted, though, to see Sabu. Well, I haven't seen it, but I am curious, based on this, to know what changes they made to the new version. Is there a legitimate case to be made for a remake in a situation where a significant portion of the original is significantly out of step with the times? And I'm not saying to correct a grievous misstep necessarily, but even just to make it more relatable to a contemporary audience in that regard. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. All I hope is that John Lurie plays Mr. Dean in that version because he has just the right irreverence, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I do think it's appropriate to re-explore a text. You can find different nuance. You can realize the characters and motivations in a different way, we can generally see the work in a new light. It might make us think about something that hadn't occurred to us before. So I don't think the work is off limits. I don't think the book is off limits either. The seasons are changing. The nuns are struggling. Ruth is getting sicker and weirder, I would say. She almost looks like a rabid dog sometimes. Philippa is having doubts about the order. She ended up planting only flowers. 
She really wants to leave. And the wind is just ever-present, blowing through their clothes and their curtains and their coverings, and they're in this riot of flowers at this point. I love the touch as Philippa is talking about these doubts. The windows behind her frame her like wings. And Clodagh says there are really only two ways of living in this place, one being you give in to all of it, which clearly she is not ready to do. So let's talk about what's motivating these nuns. They're different motivations because they're all different people. This is one of the aspects that I really like, the thing that you referred to earlier, Clota assembling this team of super nuns, basically, to manage this convent. One of the things that makes this story special, I think, is that none of these women, nor their inherent strengths or weaknesses, are cookie cutter. I get a real sense of individuality in how each of them approach this calling that people feel like leads them to a life like this. Bryony, I think, truly wants to make a difference. Sister Honey, she's trying to just be the greatest human being ever. She wants to be loved by everyone. Ruth, I don't know why she ever took the vows. And Cloda, it just makes me think about this foolishness of closing yourself off. And it seems to show for each of them, they have this inability to face any sexual or human emotion of the body or spirit. And so for once, I would actually agree with the Catholic National Legion of Decency. It seems to present this life as an escape for the abnormal, the neurotic, and the frustrated. Yes. Did all of these nuns have tragic love affairs? Is that how they all ended up here? Whatever happened, I think that they are as honest as they can be about it right now, given their unique situations. And they do have that focus that will carry them through. Never forget, we are an order of workers. I love this Mother Superior. She really has her finger on the pulse of what needs to happen in this convent. She has a lot of accumulated wisdom and she doesn't mess around. But we see Sister Ruth is obviously going to be a problem. And it's a peculiar position that the nun, universal nun, a nun, finds herself in. For instance, when you think about someone who has taken these vows, that is living this life, are you more inclined to think they are a woman or they were a woman? Does this position that they hold trump all other considerations to the point of erasing other elements of their identity? I never really thought of the ultimate point of this kind of life of service as being to escape something else, but it seems like that's what these women use that to do. And I think the Mother Superior says something interesting, and I think Clodagh misinterprets it by the whole work until you can't think. So in general, I think the same thing of nuns and priests. I think of the past tense, that they were a woman, that they were a man, that they were a person. Now, I think of them as an other, not a relatable human being, it seems to me like they're seeking to deny that they are human. I think we're both perfectly in line with this. It feels to me like it probably feels to you. It's a completely untenable position. Basically, they're saying, hey, never forget that you are supposed to always be forgetting part of your life. And it's to the point that Clodagh's interior life is nothing but the ways that your life turns and what you wanted or thought you wanted, her satisfaction with her life and the options available to her. 
this dilemma that she is going through, it's actually reminiscent of another favorite of ours from The Archers, I Know Where I'm Going. It's similar to Wendy Hiller in that. Clodagh's reaction to Mr. Dean, obviously, is clearly a reaction to something larger inside her. Not specifically to him. Right. Well, whether the character is going through that in the Hebrides or in India or anywhere else that they have chosen to set one of these films, how does this film strike you initially in terms of authenticity, especially since we've been talking about it? Artifice was such a crucial part of Powell and Pressburger's method. It doesn't feel particularly authentic in terms of being in a real setting, but I think what is authentic, I guess at least in my mind, are the characters, their inability to relate to anything other than themselves. I truly believe that there were people at the same time in similar positions who said the same derogatory and dismissive things, thought the same dismissive thoughts, and everything to them is either ludicrous or dirty or childish. That ignorance and that immaturity comes out to me. Well, you already mentioned him, the one character that embodies the native voice here, Sabu. I always enjoy when he turns up in anything, even though he may not be the greatest actor ever. I love his presence. I love his charisma. Not in any sort of exotic way, I think, but specifically because of who he is. He brings a kind of magical or fairy tale ambiance to things just because of his enthusiasm and innocence and curiosity that I think is really specifically unique to him. I agree. He seems to exist out of time, not grounded in that specific time. Do you agree? I do. And you see it in the other films that he takes part in that are also fairy tales and adventure stories. And in this particular case, his wardrobe is off the hook. It is. Maybe we also didn't see enough characters like him played by actual indigenous people. And I love that they leave a crucial part of this to him at the very end. When the little general makes his confession there, it really gives me a measure of perspective that I enjoy. It's a reminder to the audience, and especially Cloda, that this world keeps on turning regardless of their intentions. And all throughout, he's the actual inquisitive one. He's the one who actually wants to learn about other cultures. Yeah, I love him. Check out all of his stuff. There is a really great Eclipse set that has some of his films all in one. It's a great place to start with his filmography. The nuns are at this point about to hit a very big cultural barrier that has dire implications for them. A sick baby is brought to the hospital and Bryony won't give him medicine because she understands that it's a lost cause, but Sister Honey does and the baby dies and everyone abandons them. Dean's trying to warn them that it's very serious, it's not safe to go back down into the village. And we start to turn again to the breaking point that some of our nuns are getting to. Ruth is practically licking Dean whenever he's around. Cluda finally reveals the whole story of that lost love, all of that bitterness. And we learn that Ruth is not going to renew her vows, so they are going to start leaving. Now we're at this very heightened point here, so I think it's time to talk about the erotic nature of the film. Michael Powell said it was the most erotic film he had ever made. Do you view it as erotic? Oh, I definitely think so. This place has stirred thoughts in all of them, especially Cloda. They are back to square one, it feels like, with dealing with all of their baggage. Dean knows better than any of them 
how this place can affect you, he does suggest they leave immediately. There is something in the atmosphere that makes everything feel exaggerated. Now that's melodrama. And man, that stolen kiss on his hand when Dean puts the coat on Ruth's shoulders is genius. It's such a relatively chaste thing, all things considered, but it's like a huge dam of eroticism bursting. This physical interaction is so amplified when everything that came before is denial, 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 repression, repression, repression. So when she finally does that, it's just off the charts. Now, just generally speaking, do you prefer a satisfactory conclusion to all this longing, like happens in I Know Where I'm Going, or do you just leave each story to its own devices? I think when I generally want the characters to succeed, I like satisfactory mm -hmm. conclusions. But here, I'm not searching for that, because I don't think there's one to be found in this area with these people. So it's not so much a case of leaving each story to its own devices, but making sure that everyone gets what they deserve. <laughs> Probably. Again, the League of Decency and me were <laughs> on the same page. I struggle with the whole eroticism thing, because I do think that this film falls in a period where the exotic was practically synonymous with the erotic, and I think of that as being in line with colonialism. And then at the same time, I think the film is, if nothing else, expressionistic. It went against the whole realistic grain permeating British cinema. So to me, that suggests that we view it as erotic, rather than maybe it actually being so. But I think our opinion one way or the other says probably more about us. What do you think? Well, there's a whole lot there, so let's go into it a little bit at a time. In terms of exotic being synonymous with erotic, I agree with that, definitely. And there's one line that sticks out to me early on that expresses this entire attitude. They're primitive people and would consider medicine to be magic. Clearly delineates how they feel about the native culture. It's clear that there are those elements, but Powell subverts that a little bit, too, in a way that I think makes sense and is honest in the sense that there might be an infatuation with each other's culture on a number of levels. Particularly, you see that with how Sabu's character is treated. The titular black Narcissus, this pursuit of that sort of Western decadence and luxury, it's kind of a two-way street, and it also interestingly implies that there are class issues among Indians themselves woven into all that. Obviously, the colonizers have the advantage of that imbalance of power, but this makes me aware of the possibility of a bilateral curiosity. Now, the expressionistic thing, I think you're right that that's where the eroticism does definitely come back into play heavily. You mentioned it before. There's this great sequence in the middle where it's obvious that spring has sprung. Surely, that's not symbolic and won't cause any problems. And then our opinion, everything we bring to it with our own baggage, there's definitely that too. With my fondness for Grindhouse, for instance, my first instinct when I see a habit is, hmm, exploitation. <laughs> True. So to that end, I think the archers had to know that there was a specific allure and possible taboo surrounding the subject of the erotic longing of nuns. This is obviously more than pedestrian titillation. It's not carry-on cloistering. But I definitely think there is an overwhelming sense of the erotic in this to me. I guess ultimately, I don't find it erotic because it seems like it's a lot of non-functioning people running around after each other, trying to avoid running around after each other. Oh, it's the crazy ones that are hot. 
I do think you said something earlier that's really interesting about the whole gaze as we view Dean. There's definitely an erotic sensibility with that. And then the idea that surely he has relationships with native villagers. And he implies certainly that they are running after him. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too, specifically in terms of his response to Ruth at the finale of this thing. But with everything else that's going on too there, do you think that Dean has the same tragic romantic backstory as the nuns and that's why he ended up here too? Here's the backstory that I've woven for him. I assume he was in love with some rich snob, specifically a rich person, and he was turned away. And so he decided, I don't love anybody anyway. Or possibly he raped someone and had to escape. I also worry about that. I don't quite go that dark with it. (laughs) Sorry. Speaking of dark, though, Ruth is going crazy at this point. At least that's what we're led to believe. What do you ultimately think her pathology is supposed to be here? I should say, I am actually pulling for her as a misunderstood underdog for most of the running time of this movie. Because this movie does everything it can to stack the deck against her. We should be asking, what's the pathology of Michael Powell? That's true. And she doesn't do anything wrong, particularly. No, she's introduced in this Dutch angle, so we're clearly being signaled, watch out here. She seems to be inexplicably filled with hate. She's the only one of the order to be dramatically marked with a blood-soaked habit at one point. She's singing Christmas carols like she wants to murder someone. And then it's subtle sometimes, but Pal is always positioning Clota just above Ruth, looking down upon her, implying a judgment and a moral superiority all of the time. That would grate on me too. And I have to say, Ruth is perfectly cast. Kathleen Byron is so severe and wild and interesting in this. And I think I'm most sympathetic to her because I realize she has no access to the proper outlet. That's the biggest problem here. She has problems, certainly, but it never needed to get this far. And like you say, they keep saying Ruth has gone mad. By whose definition? Right up until she has her final break, she is not what I would call mad. The things that she wants right up until that point are not unreasonable... To get laid. Right. It's only being so cruelly denied those things that makes her unreasonable. I came up with a little bit of backstory for her, too, in my own mind. Even though we're told they're volunteers, I truly assume she was forcibly put in this convent. Or it was offered to her as basically her only choice. And I know Kathleen Byron really tried to play it like someone who, with a bit of understanding, could be helped. As a normal human being, I think, though, she is put into this weird box of having to play it kind of like a particular idea of what a nymphomaniac was. And I'm grounding that specifically in the context of the time as something that was supposed to have existed. Right. Hysteria in quotation marks. Yes. Now, we mentioned this earlier. The book itself fell at a really interesting time. The movie did, too. The book came out right at the start of the war. The movie was soon after the end. And also, it predated by just a few months of India achieving independence from Britain in August of 1947. So what do we make of all of this context? I think it's really showing that Britain could never possibly keep the entire country under their control. That Native people were going to live by their own religious ideals, their ways of life. 
And that none of this came out of the blue. There were simmering issues leading up to that moment. So many protests, violence, fear, hatred, ethnic cleansing of Muslims, and on and on. I think I'm in the same boat as you, as I don't necessarily feel it being attached to World War II as much as I definitely feel it relates to Indian independence. Their exit here at the end, it feels like a retreat, and more importantly, like the universe is raising up a curtain to protect this world from further incursion. That inkling of doubt that Clodagh felt when she first confronted this world that was so different from her own has been completely overrun by the end here. Now there can be no doubt about any of it. There is only confirmation that an attempt to reshape something so uncontrollable was doomed to fail from the start. This defeat and its aftermath is, in essence, I think their penance for the narrow-mindedness of attempting to impose their definition of spiritual order on someone else. So how's that for a colonial metaphor? Very true. England never owned anything, never understood anything. So then, are we rooting for anyone here? We talked about Ruth. She would be the front-runner. When I really examine it, practically no one in the traditional sense. I'm rooting for the nuns to return to the secular life, and I'm rooting for Dean to be quietly forgotten and left alone, but I'm not rooting for any of them to win or succeed. Mostly what I'm rooting for is for nature to swallow everything up. I'm going to go dark. I'm rooting <laughs> for all the villagers to murder everyone. Black Narcissus, the Narcissus <laughs> True. Now, to backtrack for just a second, what do we think this film has to ultimately say about the British character? I think of it in a very specific way, I think. I think of it more about how it's the British character refracted specifically through the archers. They cannot have very easily overthrown decades of indoctrination about empire, stiff upper lip, and all that. And fair or not, I have a very distinct view of British society at the time, some of which obviously has come through film and television. And in this, I realized a lot of that was echoed when we finally get to see Dean's house. As a kid, I had very romanticized ideas, and I think you did the same thing, of what these places were like and the objects and the fascinations that those things held. And I think I was just too young to understand that exploration has a complicated and dark flip side. Do you have a similar predisposition to any of that? I do. Now I tend to think of them as colonial monsters and brats and very much, no sex please, I'm British. I think it's interesting that Clodagh is supposed to be Irish, so that would also make her one of the oppressed, but she becomes just as complicit. That is a great point about her being the outsider there and the whole stereotype of the fiery redhead and all of that. But I disagree with you in one little way about the no sex please were British. I have to say, I think they're so clever here in terms of avoiding traditional pitfalls about things like Brits being emotionally rigid. I think their films are brimming with emotion. I mentioned one of our favorites, I Know Where I'm Going. That is nothing but that in the dialogue and the interactions. And then you have something like The Red Shoes. You don't even have to hear the dialogue. Just the images are full of emotion, almost violently so. And then I do think as a subset of that, they definitely took on issues of sexuality like few of their contemporaries. And that extends all the way to the revolutionary and controversial Peeping Tom. That was such a bold step, it ruined Powell's career. 
So I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt as to whether or not they are participating in, mourning, or maybe undermining the old systems. I think I do tend to think that they are undermining. I think all of that is done on purpose. And to me, that makes the film incredibly provocative because we're struggling here with brownface, human desire, specifically female desire, a portrait of religion, colonialism, casual racism, free will, forging our own destinies, understanding ourselves. Those to me are incredibly provocative questions. But do you think the film is provocative or more importantly, provocative enough? I do think it is provocative enough based on some things we've already said that we've addressed, like the brown face. Because when I have to think about that, I wonder, are they truly as progressive as we would like to give them credit for? Because they could have opted for more Indian actors. There was obviously still room for improvement in a lot of places. So that's one thing that gets my mind working about this. But then it also is provocative in that subtle archer's way. For instance, at the end, when everyone is unraveling, you mentioned the catalyst that sets this final whirlwind in motion, the death of a baby. That's provocative. And it's in the fallout from that that I think it achieves a kind of timelessness. The quality and clarity of Philippa's analysis are sharp no matter when you watch this. This observation that there are only two ways of living in this place and neither would do for us, that's very perceptive. Philippa's exit is so sad and timeless too. I couldn't stop the wind from blowing. That is a powerful realization, no matter when. Philippa's self-awareness and her disappointment in her own failings, it really gets me. She asks for punishment. I need a bad mark against me, she says. She craves discipline and correction. They all seem to need discipline and breaking. So provocative, modern in its treatment of complicated themes. I would say yes to both. Even when that doesn't feel mildly sexual, it seems like an odd approach to your relationship with God. Or is there ever a case when that doesn't at least feel mildly sexual? Is that just my reaction? It seems like she needs a leader. She needs a controlling hand that they're not able to make their own decisions or they don't trust themselves to make their own decisions. Maybe I'm just overwhelmed with the eroticism that I was seeing in it because to me it seems to extend to all of them in need of a firm hand. And I think just the notion of showing female desire from any standpoint is an incredibly provocative thing to do. Yeah, it's no accident that Philippa has forgotten to plant things to feed them, but rather an explosion of colorful flora. And scent. Yeah. So sensual, such a sensual gesture. And definitely feelings about the film have changed over time. I think it came to us at a really good time, personally. There was one critic that noted Archer films looked better than they were. The location photography in Technicolor by Jack Cardiff was a great deal better than the story and lifted the film above the threatening banality. What do you think about that statement? I think it's absurd on its face. And here is my proof. That thing I was saying about Sister Philippa, here you have a tertiary character at best and her story minuscule as it is, is utterly compelling, and they could have made an entire film about any of the sisters that inhabit this place, and those would be unique and fulfilling stories. Philippa's is the one that stays with me, her face, so beautifully portrayed by Flora Robeson here. Yeah, I can't even imagine the possibility of banality here. 
I can see being so overwhelmed by the technical brilliance and the technicolor photography that I might feel like nothing else could measure up to that. But come on, man, you got to take a step back and rethink that. I don't think they're just thinking through everything that is suggested to us here that leaves us to contemplate further. Well, talking about reevaluating it, how has your feeling about this changed, if any, since the last time you saw it? And that was quite a while ago. It had been a big stretch of time for me. I don't really recall at the time feeling so strongly, as I mentioned, that I think they're all skunks. I think I was way too wrapped up in the visuals, which maybe proves what that critic was saying. I don't mean to suggest that I thought all the characters were great or that their motivations were pure. I was just so visually enthralled. I also don't think I thought as much about Brownface at the time. So this is an important time to come back to it. Again, I think we have a similar response. In one regard, it's still the same. Nuns are scary. That doesn't change. But my film knowledge is deeper now, so I see more connections. Shades of Vertigo, that's an obvious touchstone. And then it crosses over into storytelling technique as well. That vertiginous viewpoint constantly being on display to one degree or another, be it landscapes or a character looking down upon another one. And I do notice some of the cringeworthy stuff more, like the brown face, but I also notice how immaculately crafted it is more as well. Now, in terms of what happens to these characters, do you ever doubt for a second that Clota will return to the secular world? I do, because really? nuns are scary. I think she <laughs> doubles down. I think she becomes one of those nuns that school kids talk about wrapping your knuckles with rulers. Interesting, because I see the innocence as an exact response to this. I feel like she Ooh, leaves it behind. Good point. And that's where she ends up. Never, not for a second, do I doubt that she leaves. She's a smart woman. She will chalk this up as a necessary but failed experiment and move on. And I have faith that she will take the right lessons from it. Uh, do you remember what happens in The Innocence? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I think she does that too. Some forces you can't fight. Good point. So any final thoughts here? Anything we didn't cover? I think the important thing is what I carry with me from this viewing going forward. What I'm left with. Even before their exodus, when Ruth is beginning her rampage, the building feels so much more like a haunted house than anything. And after they leave, it feels like there's a reclamation. The wind will be there after we are all long gone. I take such comfort in that idea. I could just watch two hours of this after they vacate and no one is left and is nothing but the sound of the wind and the curtains gently billowing. It would be incredibly soothing. You know those 10-hour... YouTube videos of the fireplace in the library. They should just make one of those with these interiors with just the wind blowing gently through them and I would sleep the deepest, most content sleep. And the rains come, don't forget, and wash away everything. And I listen to Rains Against Glass for my soothing noises. So nature will reclaim everything. The end. So how about your recommendation? My recommendation is awesome. I love this movie. I am choosing The Thief of Baghdad from 1940, directed again by Michael Powell and starring again Sabu, and also starring Conrad Veidt and June Dupre. It's a story you're probably familiar with through Aladdin or some other thing, Arabian Nights. It's about a king whose throne has been usurped that joins forces with a young thief to reclaim his kingdom and the woman that he loves. This is the first Michael Powell film that I fell in love with, and the first time that I became acquainted with Sabu as well. It is the stuff 
that Saturday afternoon matinee dreams are made of. Movie magic in the truest sense of the word. As all ages adventure stories go, it belongs right up there at the top with The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and the Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts movies with all the Harryhausen effects. This has a genie in a bottle, magic carpets, flying horses, all in that beautiful, stunning technicolor. And Conrad Veidt especially, I want to shout out. He is incredible as the villain. He is like a cobra in human form. I always loved him. Yeah, he's amazing. It is filled with wonders. Check it out. What about you? I wanted to shine a light on another Technicolor Archer's masterpiece. This time, the epic The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943. It's a romantic drama set against the backdrop of multiple British wars as seen through the eyes of Major General Clive Wynn Candy. And it stars the beautiful specimen Roger Livesey with Deborah Carrigan and Anton Walbrook. I love him. He's so great in the red shoes. He's great in everything. He's He makes me cry in this. The title is based on the satirical comic strip by David Lowe, but the idea is totally original, not based on the exploits of that character. Speaking of the British character again, that gets explored here. I think also war is strongly explored from many angles. And Roger Livesey is magnificent. Deborah Carr plays three haunting characters, and Anton Walbrook, as I mentioned, he's a German friend who changes Candy's life in a number of ways, most notably through his friendship and moral character. It is such a deeply felt film. It turns heartbreaking and frustrating and monumental. It's also one of those that has that magical feeling that no matter how long it is, it feels like it just went by in a flash. It could be three hours long, four hours long. I don't remember the running time of it right now. I just remember that every time I get to the end, I feel like, wow, it's over already? That was incredible. Agreed. So once again, that's two great recommendations. The Thief of Baghdad and The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And that brings us to the end of episode 145. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Laura Cannon at the Fatal Films podcast, Mike Scharf, Brian Sauer at the Just the Discs podcast, Keith Rich, Josh Hornbeck at the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast, Dean Estes, and Doug McCambridge at the Good Times Great Movies podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Podcast.